I'm standing under London Bridge. There's been a crossing here since the Romans bridged the Thames nearly 2,000 years ago. On the 6th of July, 1535, visitors to London Bridge witnessed a gruesome sight. The head of Thomas More, Lord High Chancellor, once the right-hand man to Henry VIII, was being placed up on a pike above the bridge. A warning to anyone who dared to defy the king. My name is Mark Zakin, and in this podcast, I'm joined by my fellow Blue Badge guide, Anthony Robbins, also known as Mr Londoner. And today, Mark and I are talking heads. Not the 1970s rock band. No, although there will be some psycho killers because we are investigating the history of human heads. Heads that were detached from their owners, sometimes hidden, sometimes stolen, and sometimes sent on long and complicated journeys. So what happened to Thomas More's head after it was mysteriously removed from the bridge? More on more later in this podcast. We're at St Paul's Cathedral. In front of us is the dome of the church rising up 365 feet, one foot for every day of the year. The cathedral was completed 300 years ago and on top of the great columns at the front of the building is a statue of St Paul, sword in his right hand. But why is a man of God, one of the founders of the Christian church and a saint, holding a deadly weapon? Paul was executed for his faith. Now, as a Roman, he was granted the privilege of being executed with a sword. That was a privilege? Well, the traditional punishment for Christians was crucifixion. Mm, I can see why he preferred a beheading. The Romans loved a good beheading. And there's a Roman cemetery in Cambridge called Nobbs Farm. No sniggering, please. Archaeologists excavated 17 decapitated skeletons there, buried 1,700 years ago, all punished for violating Roman laws. Victims included women and men, with skulls beside their feet, and pottery placed where their head would have been. The world's first jugheads. And, at a Roman burial ground in York, 40 decapitated men were buried. Historians think they were gladiators, because one of them had been bitten by a large lion. Hard to keep your head if you're being attacked by a lion. Now, we've moved half a mile from St Paul's to the Guildhall. Beneath us are the remains of London's Roman Colosseum. During excavations in the 1980s, 39 skulls were uncovered here, along with one single femur. A sort of idle bone. This was an unusual discovery because the Romans did not normally allow burials inside the city walls. These were the burials of young men with multiple wounds caused by a Roman sword or a gladiatorial weapon. So this could be London's very own gladiator graveyard. It could. But there's another possibility. The Romans sometimes decapitated their enemies and displayed their heads. A gruesome history which, as we will discover, had a long tradition in ancient Britain. Next to St Paul's is Temple Bar. From 1672, this two-storey archway marked the entrance to the City of London at Fleet Street. And people passing under the archway were greeted by the gruesome gurning of traitors' heads. The head of executed Jacobite, the Earl of Derwentwater, was spiked up on Temple Bar in 1716. 
According to legend, his wife, disguised as a fisherwoman, drove a cart under Temple Bar and men she had bribed tossed her husband's head down to her. And the last head on the archway belonged to another Jacobite rebel, Francis Townley, in 1746. And when his head was finally taken down, a faithful family retainer brought it back to Burnley in Lancashire, where it was kept in a basket, covered with a napkin, in the drawing room at Townley Hall. The Temple Bar heads became a tourist attraction. Street hawkers would hire out looking glasses for half a penny so that passerbyers could take a closer look at them. In 1766, a man was arrested in the middle of the night for firing musket balls at the heads. His excuse to the magistrate was that the traitors hadn't suffered enough. In 1772, one of the heads blew down during a storm. The blackened object had been on top of Temple Bar for nearly 50 years. A man called John Pierce took the head to a local tavern where it was buried under the floor. In 1878, the City of London needed to widen the entrance to the city, but they didn't want to destroy an historic monument. So they dismantled Temple Bar piece by piece and stored its 2,700 stones. Two years later, it was bought by a wealthy brewer who stuck it on the entry to his Hartford mansion house. Where it remained until 2004, when it was taken apart again and moved back to London and rebuilt next to St Paul's, but without the executed heads. Surely the most travelled monument in Britain. When the Romans left Britain, the Anglo-Saxons built their city, known as Londonvic, at the Aldwych area of London, where we're standing. We're by the Strand, an old Anglo-Saxon word for beach, and there would have been a riverside here 1,500 years ago, as the River Thames used to reach up as far as the Old Bridge. And the Anglo-Saxons gave this country its name, Ingerland, the land of Angles, and its language, English. Many of our towns and villages date from Anglo-Saxon times, and the boundaries were marked with Hefford Stocken. So, if you were asking for directions in Old Londonvic, you might get the reply, Go Langstreet to Pam Hefford Stocken. Go along the street to the headstakes. Yes, Hedford Stocken means headstake. The Anglo-Saxons marked the limits of estate properties with impaled heads. The headstakes would have been visible to people travelling along the main roads, the rather gruesome street furniture of early medieval England. Historians think the heads stuck up on stakes were criminals or enemies. In the Anglo-Saxon poem Beowulf, Grendel's mother kills her son's assassin, Escher, and places his head outside her cliffside lair as a warning, marking her territory with a decapitated head. But the tradition goes back much further in British history. 2,500 years ago, Celtic warriors cut off the heads of their defeated enemies, preserving them in tree resin, and then putting them on display outside their wooden castles. Some Iron Age forts were circled by dozens of spiked heads. It's a lot to get your head around. We've come to Tower Hill, next to the Tower of London. In front of us is a plaque with the names of men who were executed here after being imprisoned in the Tower. The memorial reads commemorate the tragic history and in many cases the martyrdom 
of those who, for the sake of their faith, country or ideals, staked their lives and lost. And on this site, more than 125 people were put to death. 93 of them were beheaded. The final name commemorated is Lord Lovett, who was the last person to be publicly beheaded in Britain in 1746. He was 80 years old when he was executed for supporting the exiled Scottish royal family's claim to the British throne. On the day of his execution, large numbers of spectators arrived at Tower Hill and an overcrowded timber stand collapsed, killing nine of them. Lovett found this so funny that he was still laughing at this incident as he was executed and some people claim that this is the origin of the phrase to laugh your head off. Another name on the memorial is Sir Thomas More. Once the friend and right-hand man to Henry VIII, he refused to acknowledge the king's claim to be the head of the church in England after Henry split with the Pope. More was placed in the tower, but he wouldn't change his position and was thus condemned to die. The execution took place in 1535 here at Tower Hill. After More knelt and recited a prayer, the executioner asked for Sir Thomas's pardon. Moore jumped up merrily, kissed him and gave his forgiveness. Then, with gallows humour, told the executioner that his beard was completely innocent of any crime and did not deserve the axe, and so carefully positioned the beard so that it would not be harmed. That was a close shave. His body was buried in the church inside the tower, but his parboiled head fixed up on a pike over London Bridge, the normal tradition for traitors. Moore's devoted daughter, Margaret Roper, bribed the bridgekeeper to knock the head down and she smuggled it home where she preserved the head in spices. And when Margaret died in 1544, Sir Thomas's head was buried along with her. In 1824, the vault was opened and Moore's head was put on public view in St Dunstan's Church in Canterbury for many years and the head is still buried there now. We're in front of the Houses of Parliament. In 1618, this is where Sir Walter Raleigh faced the executioner. Raleigh was one of the leading figures of the Elizabethan age, who founded the first English colony in America, pirated gold from the Spanish, defended England during the Armada, and, according to legend, threw his cape under Queen Elizabeth I to stop her stepping in a puddle. The caped Queen Ada was loved by his monarch. Unfortunately for Raleigh, however, Elizabeth's successor, King James I, didn't like Sir Walter, imprisoning him in the tower and faking charges of treason against the courtier. So, in Old Palace Yard, next to the Palace of Westminster, Sir Walter Raleigh, almost certainly innocent of the charges against him, faced the axe. His final words were somewhat impatient. Strike, man, strike! Raleigh's body was buried in St Margaret's Church next to Westminster Abbey. But what happened to his head? The story now moves to the Raleigh Manor House, West Horsley Place in Surrey. According to records, his head was displayed to the assembled crowd following the execution, then placed in a red bag and presented to Raleigh's widow Bess. She had it embalmed and kept it with her until she died 29 years later. 
And following Bessie's death, Sir Walter's head was kept in a cupboard under the stairs at West Horsley Place. It reappeared in 1660 when three of Raleigh's grandchildren died in an epidemic and it was buried alongside those children. The bag re-emerged when the author and original University Challenge host Bamba Gascoigne inherited the Raleigh House in 2014. An expert on historic dress visited West Horsley Palace and saw a Tudor-style bag that had been found in the attic space. And this bag is now on display. Twelve years prior to Raleigh's execution, the grounds here in front of the Palace of Westminster are where Guy Fawkes met his end in 1606, right next to the Parliament, the very building he tried to destroy. His decapitated head was spiked on Traitor's Gate at London Bridge, one of the many heads that marked London's only river crossing, a gruesome tradition that lasted 355 years. On a bitterly cold January day in 1649, King Charles I walked from St James Palace across St James Park to Banqueting House on London's Whitehall, where we're now standing. Following a seven-year civil war between the King's loyal supporters and Parliament that cost the lives of one in 20 English citizens, Charles I had been defeated, arrested and charged with treason. The charge stated that he hath treacherously and maliciously levied war against Parliament and the people. And when Charles was asked to plead, he refused, stating, I would know by what power I am called hither, by what lawful authority. No earthly power can call your king in question. The king can do no wrong. But for all Charles's protestations, he was pronounced guilty of all treasons, murders, rapings, burnings, spoils, desolations, damages and mischiefs to this nation committed in the wars. He was sentenced to death by beheading. Knowing he'd be under the public eye, as he walked from St James's Palace to the scaffold, the king donned two heavy shirts so that he wouldn't shiver from the cold and appear afraid. He addressed the crowd from the scaffold, announcing that he was a martyr of the people. Gracious God is on my side. Placing his head on the block, after a short pause, the king stretched forth his hands, the signal for the executioner, who with one blow severed the head from the body. The crowd let out a sigh. The executioner lifted the head to display to the spectators, and some dipped their handkerchiefs in the pool of blood to keep for miracles trophies or relics of the dead martyr. Charles's body was put in a coffin covered with black velvet and taken to Windsor Castle for a secret burial. In a bizarre postscript, Oliver Cromwell, the parliamentarian and commander-in-chief who fought against the king and brought him to trial, allowed Charles's head to be sewn back onto his body so the family could pay its respects. Although he did have a rather detached look on his face. With the king executed and the monarchy gone, Oliver Cromwell ruled the country as head of government and state, king in all but title. Cromwell died at Whitehall in 1658 and was given an elaborate state funeral here at Westminster Abbey. The actual burial had already taken place as his body was fast decaying. His headstone reads, burial place of Oliver Cromwell, 1558 to 1661. 
Now a young girl I know saw this epitaph and burst into tears because she thought Oliver had died aged only three. It's a grim story that led to your young friend's confusion. The monarchy was restored in 1660 when Charles I's son, Charles II, became king. And the new king ordered that Cromwell, who'd signed his father's death warrant after all, be exhumed from his grave in Westminster Abbey. His open coffin dragged on a sledge through the streets of London to the gallows at Tyburn, where Marble Arch stands to this day. Here, Cromwell's body was hanged in public view. Taken down, his head severed and placed on a wooden spike 20 feet above Westminster Hall at Parliament. Cromwell's head remained on Westminster Hall for at least 25 years. Then, during a great storm, the pole snapped and the head fell to the ground. A guard found it, put it under his cloak, took it home and hid it in a chimney. The news of the lost head spread quickly. A reward was offered and people searched, hoping to claim the money. The guard was too afraid to come forward. Cromwell's cranium then went on a strange journey. In 1710, it was in the possession of one Claudius Dupuis, a Swiss-French collector of curiosities, who displayed it at his museum in London. By the end of the 1700s, the head was the property of a failed comic actor and drunkard, Samuel Russell. Businessman James Cox offered Russell £100 for the head, about £10,000 in modern money. Though poor and in debt, the actor refused to sell that which he knew to be the sacred relic of his great ancestor. Now, this is the same sacred object the actor would take to drunken gatherings and pass around with abandon. James Cox finally got his way. He obtained the head after loaning the actor money he couldn't repay. Cox sold the head for £230 to the Hughes brothers who planned to exhibit it in Bond Street. But the exhibition failed and in 1815 the skull was sold on to the Wilkinson family. By this point there were rival Cromwell heads appearing across the country. One strong claim was for a head at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, but in 1911 archaeologists dismissed the Oxford head as a fake. The public wanted the truth and demanded an inquiry. A 109-page report concluded that the Wilkinson head was real. In the late 1950s, Horace Wilkinson wanted to organise a proper burial and contacted Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge, Cromwell's alma mater. On the 25th of March, 1960, the head was finally buried in a secret location near the college antechapel, preserved in the oak box which the Wilkinson family had kept it in for nearly 150 years. The burial was not announced until two years later. So, finally, Oliver Cromwell's head was laid to rest 304 years after his death and miles away from his body, which is somewhere in London, nobody knows exactly where. University College is home to a glass cabinet containing the skeleton and wax body of the eccentric English philosopher, Jeremy Bentham. He's smartly dressed in 18th century clothing and holding a walking stick known as Dapple. Bentham was an English thinker, social reformer and the founder of modern utilitarianism, a philosophy stating that the greatest happiness 
of the greatest number is the only right and proper end of government. He supported equal opportunities in education and Bentham's ideas contributed to the foundation of University College London in 1826, the first institution in England to admit students of any race, class, religion or gender. Bentham died in 1832 and in his will he requested that his body be preserved as an auto-icon, instructing that the skeleton will be put together in such a manner that the whole figure may be seated in a chair while engaged in thought in the course of writing, clad in one of my suits of black. If my personal friends should be disposed to meet for the purpose of commemorating the founder of the greatest happiness system of morals and legislation, it should be conveyed in the room where the assembled company shall meet. So Bentham's mummy was regularly wheeled out for university meetings, but it was missing an essential part. Bentham had intended that the auto-icon incorporate his actual head, preserved to resemble its appearance in life. But experimental efforts at mummification, based on practices of the indigenous people of New Zealand, left the head looking macabre, with dried and darkened skin stretched tautly over the skull. So the auto-icon was given a wax head fitted with some of Bentham's own hair. The real head was displayed in the same case as the auto-icon for many years, located between the feet of the auto-icon. It was the target of repeated student pranks, especially from King's College London. Their students stole the head in 1975 and demanded a ransom of £100 to be paid to charity. University College London finally agreed to pay a ransom of £10 and the head was returned. Another story is that the head, again stolen by students, was found in a luggage locker at Aberdeen Railway Station. The last straw, so runs another myth, came when it was discovered in the front quadrangle being used for football practice. Today, Jeremy Bentham welcomes visitors at the University College London Student Centre in Bloomsbury. We're on the trail of the Barnes Mystery, one of the most notorious crimes of the Victorian period. Julia Thomas was a retired schoolteacher living here in Mayfield Cottages in Richmond. And in 1879, she hired Kate Webster as a house servant. Unbeknown to Mrs Thomas, her new maid had lived a life of petty crime and prison terms. And from the outset, the relationship between Thomas and her maid was strained. Webster thought that Thomas's cleaning standards were too strict, while the servant's drinking, which she indulged in at the nearby Hole of the Wall pub, annoyed Thomas. Thomas gave her maid notice to leave. Webster asked Thomas to extend her employment, and Thomas begrudgingly agreed. A fatal mistake. One Sunday, Webster, dawdling too long at the alehouse, was late for work. Thomas went to church agitated, and it was the last time she was ever seen in public. Some days later, Webster met up with her former neighbour, Mr Porter, and his son. She spun a story about a wealthy relative who bequeathed to the contents of Mayfield Cottages, which she was in the process of selling. A young porter helped Webster carry a heavy box from Mayfield Cottages to a nearby bridge, 
where Webster claimed a friend would pick it up. As he walked away, Porter heard a splash. The splash was the box hitting the Thames. When it floated up at Barnes Railway Bridge, a station porter opened it to find a woman's body, minus her head and with just one foot. And then a woman's foot turned up at Twickenham and police concluded that it belonged to the same body. But whose? Maid Webster had not been seen for two weeks when the police visited two Mayfield cottages. They found copious bloodstains and charred bones in the kitchen. They also found Webster's address in County Wexford, where she'd run away to. At the trial, Webster tried to pin the killing on Mr Porter. Nobody believed her, however, and the house servant was convicted. The night before her execution, Webster confessed to the priest that she had indeed murdered Mrs Thomas. She'd argued with Thomas when she'd returned home from church and threw her from the top of the stairs, grabbing her victim by the throat to silence any screams that could alert the neighbours. After choking Thomas, Webster chopped off the head and one of Mrs Thomas's feet and boiled them in the laundry tub. Legend has it that Webster attempted to sell the fat droppings from Thomas's body to a local pub and even fed them to local boys. But this is just gory folklore. Webster, however, never revealed where she hid Mrs Thomas's head. But there's a 130-year twist to this story. In 1952, the natural historian and broadcaster Sir David Attenborough bought a house located between Mayfield Cottages and the Hole in the Wall pub, with plans to turn the pub garden into an urban nature reserve. In 2010, workmen carrying out excavation at the pub uncovered a dark, circular object which turned out to be a woman's skull. The skull had fractures corroborating Webster's account of throwing Thomas down the stairs and low collagen levels consistent with it having been boiled. The coroner concluded that the skull was indeed that of Mrs Thomas, recording a verdict of unlawful killing. The Barnes mystery was solved and Mrs Thomas's skull was interred in an unmarked grave in Richmond Cemetery in August 2011. We're visiting the home of romantic poet John Keats in Hampstead. Keats moved to this house in 1816 where he wrote some of his greatest poetry. Suffering with tuberculosis, medics advised the poet to move to a warmer climate and in 1820 Keats left for Rome where he died aged only 25. The house holds a memorial of Keats' last day on earth, a death mask. The deceased poet's face was shaved and prepared so a plaster cast could be applied to make a mask to record his face for posterity. This modern death mask tradition began around 600 years ago and they were made for museums, for universities and libraries and also used by sculptures and artists to create portraits and busts or kept by friends and family as a memorial of loved ones. Many major figures from history had death masks. Oliver Cromwell's death mask is on view at Warwick Castle. The Duke of Wellington's is at Walmer Castle and the death mask of executed Mary Queen of Scots head can be seen at Jedburgh in Scotland. Up the hill from Hampstead in Highgate Cemetery 
is the Death Mask, which is part of a 21st century revival of an interest in this strange human head art. We're looking at the grave of Malcolm McLaren. Set in the middle of a large, polished black gravestone is a three-dimensional bronze mask of the man who created the Sex Pistols. The icon of Punk's showbiz grave has all the fun and fright you would expect. This mask was made by Nick Reynolds, the son of Bruce Reynolds, mastermind of the Great Train Robbery. Nick is an artist and a musician. He plays harmonica in Alabama 3, the London band that created the Sopranos' famous theme tune. Reynolds is Britain's leading death mask maker and has created casts for many public figures, including film director Ken Russell, actor Peter O'Toole, and the punk icon immortalised here in Highgate Cemetery. So that is the story of some of the most famous heads in Britain. But which head made the longest journey away from its owner? Hmm, Charles I. The head of state may have lost his head, but it was stitched back on, so probably only went a few feet away from him. Walter Raleigh. Body in Westminster, head 40 miles away at West Horsley in Surrey, getting closer. Thomas More. Buried in the Tower of London, head in Canterbury, 60 miles. You're headed in the right direction. Cromwell. Body in London, head in Cambridge, 64 miles, winner by a short head. Why do you get all the head puns? Keep your head on, Anthony. This is heading in the wrong direction. I'm laughing my head off. This British Guild of Tourist Guides podcast was written and presented by Mark Zakian and featured Anthony Robbins. The music was Chasing Daylight by Scott Buckley, licensed as Creative Commons 4.0. For tours and information about Blue Badge Guides, visit britainsbestguides.org.